and just sang that wonderful song. By the same title, uh, several songs, in fact, that come out of these passages. And uh, as I was uh, finishing this uh, sermon off uh, late yesterday, um, I put on Handel's Messiah. It has this wonderful passage based on Revelation chapter 5, which is our text this morning. And so, but it was distracting because I got so into the music and the, that great chorus, I wasn't writing anything. So I had to turn it off so I could uh, get something down. So there's like little gaps and stuff here, you know. I'm sure that's why. Revelation chapter 5. We're going to read all 14 verses. Please turn in your Bibles with me or read along in the outline and listen carefully as this is God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard among, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of worship, remind us of what this is all about. Show us that our worship can be so much more because the one we worship is worthy of awe. 
Remind us that we join a worship service already in progress. Lord, help us to meet Jesus in his glory as we see him in these words. Do this for each one of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The movie uh, that is made from uh, Frank L. Baum's The Wizard of Oz is not only a well-worn film classic, but it's also a parable of American life. If you remember the movie, young Dorothy, snatched by a tornado from her farm home in black and white Kansas, awakens in the technicolor world of Oz, dazzling with the delights and terrors of the imagination. And although Oz is full of wonders, Dorothy longs for home. And so she begins a pilgrimage to the Emerald City, where she's told the great Wizard of Oz can fulfill her dream to return to Kansas. Along the way, she meets fellow pilgrims who join her on her quest to make requests of the wizard, a tin man who needs a heart, a lion who lacks courage, and a scarecrow who wants a brain. So after many adventures, they finally get there and are granted an audience with the wizard. And when they walk in, they're terrified by the awful flashes of light, smoke, and a thunderous voice that just assails their eyes and ears. That is until Dorothy's little dog, Toto, pulls aside a curtain in one corner of the great hall. And what is revealed is a little old man, you know, at this panel and he's operating buttons and levers and he's speaking into a microphone and looking very much like the medicine show huckster back in Kansas, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And the wizard's terrifying splendor is merely the product of technology and marketing. So when the pilgrims arrive, he's unable to grant them what they want. But then again, he no longer has to bestow uh, those gifts upon them. For along the way, the Tin Man has revealed his compassion, and the Scarecrow has demonstrated his ability to think, and the Lion has proven to be brave. In other words, through their quest to reach the wizard, they've already saved themselves. And so all the wizard needs to do is certify their accomplishments. And it's the perfect parable for a self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-centered, sola bootstrapsa American individualism. Rich will not be preaching on that sola. <laughs> it also shows us a uh, lighthearted cynicism that suspects, you know, the reality is that nothing in the universe is actually worth our wonder. Uh, people who can fix themselves, you know, are not easily impressed with things that are bigger and better than they are. And so ultimately you have to ask, is anyone or anything intrinsically worthy of awe? Or can we rest in uh, our own confidence that whatever made previous generations uh, marvel can now be uh, explained away and rendered ordinary? The loss of awe in the modern world 
could be attributed to the expansion of our scientific understanding, growing democratic ideals in world politics, our growing technological capacity to simulate the miraculous in film, television, and computer programs, where we can create a virtual world in which anything can happen, except that nothing actually happens. Even in our language, awe, we don't use it, awesome. Among our youth, awesome has become a word meaning okay. It's not really awesome anymore, you know? Your brother took out the trash for you, awesome. (laughs) Really? I don't think so, it's nice. It's not awesome. You know, we've devalued, we've diminished that word. We've diminished the sense of awe. The book of Revelation is going to wage war on the loss of awe. And particularly this chapter is declared war on the loss of awe. So today we're in Revelation chapter 5. We're going to see who and what is truly worthy of awe. So let's turn to our text. And we start with a problem. First, we have the problem of the scroll, verses 1 through 4. The problem of the scroll. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. In this vision, which started back at the beginning of chapter 4, Uh, The Apostle John saw a throne in heaven with someone of great majesty sitting upon it and heavenly beings ranged around it. And as the vision continues, John sees two more things. First, he sees a scroll, a sealed record of both history and the unknown future. And second, he sees a lamb standing before the throne. There's various interpretations of this scroll, But the one that seems to fit the context of Revelation uh, the best is that it's a record of God's plan for the world. And uh, we know that because we've read ahead in the book, you know, which I'm sure they couldn't do as they were listening, and certainly John didn't know at the time. But it's a plan that includes both the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of God's people. And as the vision continues... The contents of the scroll will carry us both backwards and forward in history. Remember, God is not bound by time and space. He sees past, present, and future uh, all at the same time. And so the scroll is God's plan, which has past, present, and future all laid out. And this is going to be revealed. The language about the scroll draws heavily from Ezekiel 2. Those of you in Rich's Sunday School class already know this. But in Ezekiel 2, it says... When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. 
because Ezekiel's scroll symbolized the message that he was to deliver to God's people, he was commanded to eat the scroll in preparation for proclaiming what was written on the scroll. But here in Revelation, there's a great obstacle to John's uh, preaching what is written in the scroll because the scroll that John sees is still sealed. It's closed, and it's sealed with seven seals. Seven, again, being the number of completeness. The thought is, is that the contents of the scroll are completely hidden. No one can look inside ahead of time to learn what will come to pass. And a sealed scroll couldn't be read until the seals were broken. And we read similar to that in Isaiah 29. The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And since the seal symbolizes the owner's authority, it couldn't legitimately be broken uh, without his authorization. And herein lies the problem. A strong angel, not a regular angel, but a strong angel. We don't know if that's an archangel, if that's Gabriel or Michael, the named angels. All we know is it's a strong angel. And I don't know a whole ton about angels, but I know you don't want to mess with a strong angel, okay? Uh, don't do that. Not good. A strong angel puts into words, verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And the breaking of the seals will be narrated for us in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And it brings to pass events in the world. That is, the opening of the scroll does not merely uh, disclose the historical record. In John's vision, it sets the divine will in motion to accomplish God's purpose and to bring history to its predestined conclusion. So the opening scroll is not only an act of executive disclosure, it's also an act of executive authority, putting its decrees into action. And the things written in the scroll, we're told, must take place because they constitute God's plan for history, culminating in the vindication of his servants and the unchallenged establishment of his dominion on earth as it is in heaven. And the strong angel's question is not merely who is worthy to reveal God's plan, but also who is worthy to carry out God's plan. The question is, uh, who in the created order has sovereign authority over God's plan of judgment and redemption? And of course, God himself is worthy, as we saw back in chapter 4, but God's not going to open the scroll. He's required that it be opened by someone else. And so the apostle John weeps. It says he wept because in terms of the vision, until the scroll is opened, history can't come to its rightful conclusion. And if no one's worthy to open the scroll, then history won't uh, unfold in the interest of the kingdom of God. And so he's just stunned that there is no one worthy on earth or in heaven or under the earth, and no one can open the scroll. And he starts weeping. It says he weeps loudly. He has a sense of he's just wailing that there's no one worthy. Who deserves to receive from the Father's hand all authority in heaven and on earth to make the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of God? Well, we, we read later in Revelation chapter 11 
Uh, we have a series of sevens coming, a seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. And uh, when we get to the seventh trumpet, it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know, and I hear Handel's Messiah in the background playing. But our Lord Jesus himself says at the end of Matthew 28, what we commonly call the Great Commission. Now, he doesn't just start by saying, go therefore and make disciples. He starts with, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's the answer to the problem of the scroll. The answer we, we get is the solution of the Savior. Verses 5 through 7, the solution of the Savior. The suspense and the sorrow of John is broken by the voice of one of the elders who answers the strong angel's question. It says, starting at verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John has this amazing picture. The lion the tribe of Judah is what he's told. Now when uh, Israel at the end of his life, uh, Jacob became Israel in the end of Genesis, near the end, uh, he bestows a final blessing on his sons in Genesis, in Genesis 49. And there he compares Judah with a lion. And he foresaw this perpetual royal dynasty from Judah's line. And then that's continued when God selects David Remember, Saul had been king, but Saul was a Benjamite. He didn't fulfill the promise. But then God selects David, and David comes from the right line. And so he sets that fulfillment of that promise in motion. But then everybody thought it was lost during the time of the exile and Daniel. Remember, we went through Daniel, and they got shipped off to Babylon. It would seem like David's dynasty had now ended and been cut off. But the prophet Isaiah uh, foresaw a shoot rising from the stump of Jesse, who's David's father. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And those promises are finally reached fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1. Uh, 1, 1. Uh, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first way of identifying the one who's able to open the scroll is as uh, the Messiah, the king who would uh, arise from the seed of David, and he has triumphed 
and conquered. And throughout the whole course of the book, it's going to be clear that the future and final victory of the Messiah and of his kingdom is just an extension of the victory he's already won over sin and death and the devil at the cross and resurrection. And clearly, the identification of the lion in verse 5 is the same as the figure who's described in verse 6. But it must be very confusing for John because he's told the lion of the tribe of Judah and he turns and it's a lamb. You said lion. Big, furry, Aslan, lion. It's not just a lamb, it's actually a little lamb. But this is key to understanding some of the imagery. The lion is the lamb. You won't get this chapter, you won't get this book if you can't comprehend that the lion is the lamb. I mean, that's what... Uh, the Jews didn't grasp when Jesus was among them and he went to the cross. And it was the Messiah's primary ministry and calling to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. The lion is a lamb. Lamb is used dozens, uh, hundreds of times throughout the Bible, almost always in reference to sacrifice. It carries with it uh, the, the, the reference to a sacrificial death. So the lion the king who is going to open the seals is the very one who gave his life to redeem his people. There's no other way to accomplish the divine purpose for the world than through the death of Jesus on the cross. His death on the cross is the victory that makes him worthy to open the scroll. And therefore, the slaughtered sacrifice stands no longer dead, but now alive forevermore. And the lamb will open the scroll, which is to say he's going to interpret and control the course of events that is written beforehand in the scroll. Now, there's two words for lamb in Greek in the New Testament. One word, uh, omnos, means lamb. It's the word used by John the Baptist in John chapter 1, where he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second word... The word used here is Arnian, and it means little lamb. And many people think that C.S. Lewis got the name for Narnia from this word, Arnian. You basically take the last letter, make it the first letter, and there you go. Now, I don't know if C.S. Lewis ever said that. Maybe some C.S. Lewis experts here. But uh, I would say about half the stuff I read think that's very likely. Um, and I think it would be amazing, the Chronicles of the Little Lamb. That would be cool. But this word Arnian is the word that the Apostle Peter uses in 1 Peter when he says, you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we have Jesus as the Arnian, the little lamb. But then there's a description of Jesus like you've never seen him before. The text says he has seven horns and seven eyes, not like any lamb on my farm. Okay, the horn now is this, a typical symbol in the Bible of strength. And so seven horns, seven being the number of completeness, 
shows a symbol of complete strength, complete power, or what we would call omnipotence. The seven eyes, then, would be a symbol of omniscience, or complete or perfect knowledge. And the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God who go throughout the world, who see and know everything that's going on. Of course, we're reminded uh, in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I've said previously, uh, back when we were in chapter 1, that the seven spirits are... uh, Uh, Jesus' way in speaking to John of speaking of the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that the the Holy Spirit works in the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior's gift to the world and he carries out Christ's work in the world. As Peter reminds us in his Pentecost sermon in the beginning of the book of Acts, it is Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit and because of the Lord's death and resurrection, the Spirit is given to the world. What simpler or more beautiful way could be found of making the point that history is under God's control and the Father has appointed his Son, Jesus Christ, to bring it to its proper conclusion uh, than for the Lamb to receive this scroll from the hand of the Father sitting on the heavenly throne. Direct authority over the world and its history, as it were, is being given uh, by the Father to the Son. So what do we do with all this the scene of the lion and the lamb and the scroll and this uh, granting of authority. Well, we should respond the same way uh, that everyone responded here in Revelation chapter 5. And uh, that's with the response of the new song, verses 8 through 14, the response of the new song. It says... And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As incense burns, smoke goes up. Uh, It's uh, like the prayers of the saints, which ascend to heaven. Uh, I believe we have a Sunday evening prayer meeting. We could say it's an incense meeting. That might sound a little odd, but it would fit. Verse 9 And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. It's an amazing scene. When heaven sees the scroll being handed from father to son, it breaks out in this great hymn of praise. And we're told that the the creatures and the elders have harps. It's an instrument used in the praise of God. It's mentioned frequently in the Psalms, and John's going to mention it several more times in this book in regard to the music being played in heaven. 
You can sort of think of it as the string section of the orchestra providing the dominant sound. That sound good, Tom? All right. String guy. He's all over that. And from long ago, incense has been the symbol of the people's prayers because the smoke and smell of the burning incense ascend to heaven. And uh, here, these are the prayers uh, for the coming of the kingdom of God. In a manner sort of very typical of apocalyptic visions we'll see throughout Revelation, John is just piling symbol on top of symbol on top of symbol. He has no problem with mixing metaphors, analogies, similes. He'll just shove them all into the same paragraph, just trying to sort of get you this overwhelming image. You know, it's obviously words uh, can't describe what he's seeing. And so he's just, you know, throwing out all the symbols that come to mind and metaphors and, you know, drive uh, English teachers crazy, right, Monty? So I'm getting to pick on everybody today. They, uh... So we have these images, and then there's this strange heavenly choir of uh, the living creatures and the elders and the angels, and they break out into joyful song. And song is a good thing uh, in the Bible, in fact, in Zephaniah, I know you've all been reading that recently, uh, Zephaniah, there's a reference to the Lord singing over his people. Singing is as important as it is to human life because we've been made in the image of God and God is a musical being. He's a singing being. He loves music. He has harps and, and all these sounds in heaven. And they sing a new song. New, a very important word in the Bible and in the book of Revelation. And we read of new songs often in the book of Psalms. Songs in which the grace and power of God uh, are celebrated because God's grace and power makes old dying and ruined things new. And things that are new uh, are in the Bible always connected with the salvation and grace of God. So we'll read about and we'll hear about in Revelation of the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth, all wonderful things that God's grace is going to bring to pass. And the verses that follow, the song is amplified first by this great host of angels and then by all creation bearing witness to Jesus Christ's universal lordship and sovereignty. Now the song opens with the same words, uh, that were sung of God at the end of chapter 1. And we read verses 9 and 10, very important verses. We read, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ's redeeming work is described by saying that he purchased men and women for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is a perspective of the Bible throughout the Bible. Christ's redeeming work is effective. It accomplishes its ends. It doesn't wait upon the meeting of some uh, further condition to, uh, to gain its ends. Men believe and repent and follow Jesus in obedience because they have been redeemed by him. They've been bought and paid for and belong to him. And so certain is the eventual uh, consummation of their salvation, those whom Christ has redeemed by his shed blood, by his sacrificial death, 
that all of the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil cannot prevent it. That's the theme of the scroll, the scroll that the lamb, who appeared to have been slain, is now holding in his hand. The saints have been made into a kingdom and priests. It's an important theme in Revelation. It's already been mentioned in chapter 1, and it comes back again at the end of the book in Revelation 20, where we read, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Okay, with the sharing in the resurrection of Jesus. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Over these saints, the second death has no power. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Those who are born once die twice. Those who are born twice die once. That may be just a... a, Uh, One more thing for you to remember, just a nice saying to remember. It may be just theology for you. This morning, for Betty Parks, that's reality. And the Apostle John wants it to be reality for you as well. As I said, we woke up to grieving. She woke up to glory. I said earlier, this scroll is a record of God's plan for the world, a record of history, past, present, and future. History is a divine plot. It's a story written in heaven before it happens on earth. It is the outworking of God's purpose for the world, for mankind, for every human being. It's the manifestation of God's redeeming love and his holy justice. It's a prelude to the end, to the consummation of love and justice in an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. It is the great drama of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And that's what we're being shown and told here in chapter five. That's the meaning of the scroll that's sealed seven times, of the lamb who was slain, taking the scroll from the hand of God. That's the meaning of the thrilling worship of the lamb by the great host of heaven. They all see what this means and, uh, and what wonder and comfort and encouragement and joy it must be to the saints to know that all this will transpire in the world and that all of this is the will of their God and Savior. The history that's reported in Scripture from the moment of creation to the end of the first century when Revelation is being written is given this authoritative uh, interpretation. It's God's plan and purpose that's being unfolded, the central event of which is the revelation of God's Son, Jesus Christ, his work as the world's redeemer, and that plan is now relentlessly moving on uh, to its... Uh, final end at the end of the age when all will be revealed. And history is uh, supercharged with significance precisely because it's the outworking of a divinely written script. In history, we encounter God's mind and God's will. And the Bible's viewpoint is that everything about your life and everything about the life of the world at this moment depends absolutely on what's happened in the past and the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son and on what will come to pass in the future at his coming again. Everything depends on what Jesus did in the past and on what Jesus is going to do in the future. It all 
depends on Jesus. History is the will of God, and all of it, down to the smallest detail, existed first in God's mind before it ever happened in the world. And Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, alone has the power and authority to rule that history and bring it to its appointed end. Without him, there is no meaning, no goal, no purpose, just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But with him, there is certain fulfillment, a glorious conclusion, a triumph, a moral, just, and right uh, consummation for every human being who has ever lived in the world and for the entire world as a whole. That's why vast hosts of heaven are singing a new song to God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they're falling on their faces before him. And that's why Christians throughout the ages, even in the darkest of days, have known for certain that what happens to them as a part of what's happening in their world, in their time, is precisely what's supposed to happen. Precisely what was written down as going to happen before the world ever was. Everything is part of the story that God has written. Everything circles around the Lamb, and everything will end at that throne with vast multitudes of men and angels before it singing new songs. Now remember, this is all part of the letter that's being written and sent to those seven churches that we learned about in chapters two and three. What effect do you think this vision would have had on those churches in Asia Minor? And we're going through all sorts of different things. Well, I think the persecuted in those churches would be deeply encouraged to endure all things on behalf of him who bore all things for their redemption. Those that were cold-hearted, remember some were sort of cold-hearted, and they're invited to be renewed in their affections for him whose love for them is their own rebuke. The Jewish Christians uh, there are secured in this new covenant faith They're being reassured that Jesus is indeed God's Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The fearful are being given strength, confidence, and hope as they see uh, who controls history and who controls their destiny. And those Christians who are just vastly outnumbered in the Roman Empire, they're made aware that they're far from being a minority, but they're part of this uncountable community. And those who are deceived by false teaching are confronted with this uh, worship that's done in the spirit and in truth and is pure. And the small churches in Asia Minor realize that when they gather to worship God, that they're part of something far more majestic and immense than they could ever dream or imagine. And the whole church, uh, all seven of the churches, the churches then, the churches now, are called to affirm afresh with confidence, with passion and joy that it is Jesus who is Lord and God. Not the Roman Empire, not the American Empire, not any empire, not any ruler, not any power or principality, but it is Jesus who is Lord and God, and he will reign forever and ever. You may have heard the story of a couple who resorted to do-it-yourself marriage counseling. I think I might have told it before. I don't really remember. But they resolved to make a list of each other's faults and then read them aloud to each other. Sounds like a constructive evening, huh? (laughs) 
So she made her list, and he made his, and the wife gave her list of complaints to the husband, and he read them aloud. You snore, you eat in bed, you get home too late, leave too early. And she went through the whole list. And after finishing, the husband did the same. He gave her his list. But when she looked at the paper, she began to smile because he had written all of his grievances, and there were many. But next to each, he had written, I forgive this. And the result was an itemized list of grace. You're going to receive such a list on Judgment Day. Remember, the primary purpose of judgment is to reveal the grace of the Father. And as your sins are announced, God's grace is magnified. But the, you know, the question remains, why do our deeds have to be exposed? According to Jesus in Luke 12, he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Is Jesus saying that all the secrets will be revealed, secrets of sinners and saints alike? Yes, he is. But this is essential. The sins of the saved will be revealed as forgiven sins. Our transgressions will be announced as pardoned transgressions. That's the second reason believers will be judged. The first, so our acts can be rewarded, and second, so that God's grace can be revealed. Imagine the event. You're before the judgment seat of Christ. The book is open. The reading begins. Each sin, each deceit, each occasion of destruction and greed. But as soon as the infraction is read, grace is proclaimed. You know, they, they get to Dave. Maybe me, maybe one of the others. There's a bunch of us. And it reads, disrespectful at age 10, lied at 15, lusted at 20, gossiped at 30, got angry at 40, disobeyed God at 50. And the result is God's merciful verdict echoes throughout the universe. For the first time in history, we will understand the depth of his goodness, itemized grace, cataloged kindness, registered forgiveness, will stand in awe as one sin after the other is proclaimed and then pardoned. Jealousies revealed and removed, infidelities announced and cleansed, lies exposed and then erased. And the devil will shrink back in defeat. The angels will step forward in awe, will stand tall in God's grace. As we see how much he's forgiven us, as we see how much he loves us, and we'll worship him and we'll join with the song of the saints, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what a triumph that will be for our Lord. And you may be thinking that's a triumph for him, but it's humiliation for me. No, it won't. Scripture promises, 1 Peter 2, 6, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But how can this be if the hidden is known and the secret is shown? Won't I be embarrassed uh, beyond recovery? No, you won't. And here's why. Shame is a child of self-centeredness. Heaven's occupants are not self-centered. They're Christ-centered. You'll be there in your sinless state. The sinless don't uh, protect a reputation. They don't have to project an image. You won't be ashamed. You'll be happy to let God do in heaven what he did on earth. Be honored in your weakness. Our heads won't be bowed in shame. They'll be bowed in worship. By the way, won't it feel good to get it all out in the open? No more games, no more make-believe, no more cover-ups, no more status seekers, no more ladder climbers. It'll be the result, it'll be the first genuine 
community of forgiven people. And only one is worthy of that applause of heaven, of that new song. And he's the one with the pierced hands and the pierced feet. He is the lion and he is the lamb. And he will reign forever and ever. And we will worship him. After all, he is the king. And he is coming back for those he loves. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for once again revealing Jesus to us. Thank you for opening up a a door to heaven so that we can see. Lord, for those of us who need this heavenly perspective, help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to sing with the company of heaven that worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who was worthy, who is worthy, who always will be worthy, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.